Hello and welcome to The Politics of Peterborough, the podcast where we chat with the people who have been elected to make decisions about our city and those who try to influence them. I'm your host, Dave Adcock. It's been nearly three months since the last episode of the podcast, a slightly longer absence than planned, and there have been one or two developments in the Peterborough political world. So let's have a quick recap of the goings on. First up, on the 4th of May, we had the 2023 local elections, and they threw up a few surprise results. Labour gained Britain from the Conservatives, and then retook Fletton and Woodston from Imtiaz Ali, and North from Ansar Ali, both of whom had been deselected by the party. The Greens held on to Orton Longville, with Councillor Skibstead becoming the first in Peterborough since 2002 to hold their seat after switching parties, and the first councillor in the country to switch from Labour to Green and retain their seat. After losing Breton, it turned into a pretty good night for the Conservatives, gaining the Ravensthorpe seat and rounding off the election with the biggest result of the night when they took both park seats from Labour. That left them two seats better off than the start of the night and on 30 seats overall, just one short of an outright majority. However, two weeks after the election, things started to go downhill for the Conservatives when three of their councillors, Brian Rush, Ray Bisby and Peter Hiller, took the decision to leave the party and join the Peterborough First Group. Two days later, Councillor Gavin Elsie made it four, and the Conservatives were down to 26. The following day, it was revealed that Councillor Mohamed Farouk had been suspended from the Conservative Party, apparently accused of trying to organise a vote of no confidence against Council leader Wayne Fitzgerald, an accusation he denied. The next two weeks passed fairly quietly. Well, except for Peterborough MP Paul Bristow being asked to leave the chamber in the House of Commons by the Speaker for heckling one too many times. Nigel Farage presenting his GB News programme from the city on the day record immigration figures were announced, and the council announcing it would cost £35,000 to fix the fountains in Cathedral Square, and so put it to a public vote on social media as to whether they should remain off for good. Spoiler alert, it's not good news for those who enjoy splashing around in the summer. That brings us to the 7th of June, when Councillor Farouk, in an interview with our last guest on the pod, Paul Stainton, announced he too was leaving the Conservative group due to what he felt was a toxic environment and bullying taking place which was putting his health at risk. His son, Councillor Saqib Farouk, joined him less than an hour later and before the morning was out, Cabinet Member John Howard had made it three, with all of them currently sitting as independents. That leaves the Conservatives with 23 councillors, their lowest number since 1996, and a long way from the majority that they were so close to winning just a month before, but still nine more than the next biggest group on the council. At the time of recording this introduction, the Conservatives and Councillor Fitzgerald remain in charge of the council. Bear in mind that I sat down with this month's guest on the 6th of June, before the second batch of resignations, which is why it doesn't come up in conversation. If you want to keep up with the fast-moving world of politics in Peterborough, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at PoliticsPBORO, where I live in hope that my profile picture showing the makeup of the council will stay in date for longer than just a few days. On with the show. Our guest for this episode is a member of the Royal College of General Practitioners, the Muslim Doctors Association and the British Islamic Medical Association. First elected to the council in 2019, for the last year she's been the mayoress of Peterborough before being re-elected last month in what was probably Labour's best result of the night, with a swing of over 12% from the Conservatives from her previous win. Councillor Dr Shabina Asad Kayum, welcome to the politics of Peterborough. Good morning Dave, thank you very much for having me on. We'll get into the recent elections a little later, but first I want to find out a bit about your journey into politics. You grew up in London, uh, how did you come to live in Peterborough? Well, my background is, obviously, as everybody knows, I'm a medic, but what many people don't know is that my husband's also a medic as well. So as 
born and brought up in London, schooling, etc. And then I met my husband in Norfolk and Norwich, which is a lovely leafy green part of the county. Um, we met in 2004. He was an ear, nose, throat surgeon. I was an ear, nose, throat surgeon before I became um, an accident and emergency doctor and then a GP. And we got married very quickly. We decided without going into uh, sort of the sloppy details, I'd like, as I'd like to say, we decided very, very much that, you know, this, this is the one and uh, got married. And then obviously as training, surgical training takes you through a lot of different pathways. So he commenced on a registrar program of training, which was predominantly based in the East of England deanery. So we traveled to places like Ipswich, Colchester, Stevenage, Luton, Peterborough, and that's where our first exposure with Peterborough was. And we then uh, settled in Peterborough in 2013 after living here for a period of time in 2008, 2009, 2010. I completed my GP training in Kettering um, from 2009 to 2012. And um, when we settled here, that is that is uh, sort of how I, I sort of came to become exposed to what local politics was like, multinational. I was always very politically affiliated in childhood. My dad was uh, somebody who actively participated in Labour campaigns and more recently was an ardent supporter of the Sadiq Khan uh, mayoral elections. Um, and I was located in Peterborough at the time. So we've always had politics in the back of our household. Um, and predominantly since I've been a, a child, it always has been aligned with the Labour movement. You've stated previously that your kind of political activism began in around 2017. Was there a particular moment that pushed you to becoming more involved in the Labour Party? I think it's always been there at the back of my mind, Dave. I think that I've always been very mindful of socioeconomic disparity between the working class and those that are sort of more well off. I've been very conscious of that. As a doctor, you're even more exposed to those situations when you meet people. In my work as a GP, I've met a lot of people where I have to deal holistically with some of the socioeconomic problems they face. And that could be to do with education, with housing, how people are affected by social care needs as well. We often look after people in nursing homes. So a lot of that naturally feeds into the, the political spectrum too. And we have a lot of influence and a lot of say in that as medics. So I was always very politically inclined. I also was the host of a health radio show on Salaam Radio, which is a community Muslim radio station that opened my eyes even more to the little pockets of communities in and around Peterborough. As you know, Peterborough is an incredibly diverse city. And that gave me a little bit more of an idea about what these communities needs were. And it interested me even more. And at the time, naturally, there was a deficit of women within the local Labour Party. So the moment came about in late 2018, where I had some colleagues who were encouraging at the time of bringing on board more women. They were very encouraging of me. I had to think about it because I had responsibilities at home with the children. And I thought that I'd give it a go. And I also was encouraged, believe it or not, by an elderly patient of mine who came to me because of a social care problem with his wife 
who I was caring for. And he said, you'd be really good actually on the council. And I looked at him and I thought, oh, get away for goodness sake. Don't, don't. I said, that's a silly idea. He said, no, you'd actually be really good. I'd support you. And that's when the penny dropped. And I always felt restricted as a GP when it came to communicating with the council. Requests would only go so far. So I thought long and hard about it. And it occurred to me one day that actually I could bridge that gap with trying to marry the two roles between being a counsellor and a GP. And yeah, I threw my hat in and I had no idea I'd win the first time. But when I did, it really did open my eyes to what a counsellor really can do for their residents. So I'm really happy that I made that decision and I'd never go back. I'd never change my, my mind about coming into politics ever. Has it lived up to your expectations? Sort of the obviously you, you've just been re-elected for the first time, so you've served a, a full four-year term. Is it what you anticipated when you you first made that decision to stand? Not at all. I think when you work in an area that I do, which is within the prism of the NHS, you are fairly protected. You only ever see scenarios and situations that involve your patients, and a lot of it is what I would describe defensive medicine, where we make decisions that influence people's lives. And in that you have to be very aware of safety. We are very careful when we make decisions. And all of a sudden you come into an arena such as politics and you see that you are subjected to public scrutiny and also other political party scrutiny in a way that you could never have anticipated. So in conclusion, I will say it has been one of the most challenging journeys of my life that I have ever experienced. And the majority of it for the residents, I think, from that perspective, has been very, very positive. From the political perspective, it has been incredibly challenging. It has been a journey that has brought about because I'm an optimist, I'm not a pessimist. And I always like to reflect on things in a positive manner. So if I'm to look at it in a positive aspect, I try and take out from the negatives what I've learned, how I've grown. And I have grown. It's made me more resilient. It has made me have the, the will, I think, and the urge to want to encourage younger people into this field by having a vision of setting out and making this a more cleaner, kind and compassionate type of politics. So I've always looked at how to change the way things currently are. I've, I've always had a passion to do that from my own experiences and that how we could do things so much more better. So those are the, the learning points I think that I've gained, but it has been incredibly challenging at times and there have been parts I think that it, it does impact on your mental health I think if you ask the majority of politicians they will say that it does have an impact on your mental health and in turn because a lot of politicians have families around them it also impacts on how you function at home what your relationships are and it, it, it hasn't been an easy ride I have to be brutally honest about that it hasn't been easy whatsoever but I take the positives out of that and I learn from that and I, I want to be able to take that learning and change the negatives into the positives for, for other people, for, for the generation that comes after us.
Now, one of the challenges you you have faced was back in 2021 when you were among uh, a number of Labour Party members and councillors who were suspended after allegations of anti-Semitism. Following investigations, you were reinstated by the party and you have subsequently written a couple of articles for the Jewish News giving your account. What lessons have you learned from that period of time? The lessons that I've learned, and I, I want this to come across as honest and as open as possible. If there's anything, Dave, that we can take from being a public representative is that nowadays the public's trust in their public representatives is waning. It is, if we generally see the outlook. Therefore, it is incumbent upon me, it is necessary that I'm as open and as honest as possible. I've tried to reflect that in those articles that you've read. Uh, a culture of honesty, a culture of openness, a culture of transparency, a culture of being able to speak your truth. And I'm going to use this opportunity to speak that truth again. And what I've learned in answer to your question is that we are representatives of every community here in the city. It is important that we learn about the sensitivities of how communities can feel hurt, can feel insulted, And it's important to try to rectify those wrongs. Now, I'm not judge, jury and executioner. However, pre-2019, there was a culture that had developed within the Labour Party. The HRC report had stipulated that. It was necessary for the Labour leadership at the time to take action. And whatever was brought up at the time more locally, the investigation was necessary. Those investigations were necessary and those were, that were exonerated or that came through, it was a post a process of scrutiny that should have taken place prior to 2019. And what's come out of it is that we can all have views about things. It's very important that we have views about things, but it's also very important that we are sensitive, that in some very contentious issues, what information is being put out there, whether that information is validated and whether it has the potential to hurt a community. So the advice that I I give any of my councillors, now I'm the Labour Whip as well, I arranged anti-Semitism training for all of our councillors. I attended the anti-Semitism training that was provided by Peterborough City Council as well. But it's an ongoing learning process and that always check always come to me, I say to my counsellors, before posting anything, if you're quite not sure about the authenticity of the information. And um, I'd like to say that um, I was one of the counsellors, I hadn't posted anything, I hadn't commented on anything, it was on the basis of some of the likes that had taken place. But then again, it's very important that we put our hands up and we say that we have ultimate responsibility of our social media profiles. And that should be something that goes forward and that people should learn from it. So yes, in a nutshell, I I think that a lot has been learned on this journey. And for those people that haven't read those articles in the Jewish news that I've published, I'd be very encouraging of them to take a look at and and read them. Your first four years as a councillor have had their ups and downs. You've received racism and a death threat, which resulted in police action and a conviction. Uh, You brought a libel claim against a former Conservative councillor after he alleged that you'd committed electoral fraud and voter intimidation, a claim of which you were uh, awarded damages and legal costs, as well as the suspension that we've just discussed. This is all on top of your day job as a GP. Uh, Most people would probably turn around and just say it's not worth the hassle. 
What made you want to fight on and seek re-election this year? Because there was nothing for me to hide. I know that, Dave, you and I have had conversations um, before this as well. And upon reflection, if an individual has nothing to hide, they will seek the truth and they will fight for the truth. In the same way, these false allegations of voter intimidation and voter fraud were entirely baseless. There was never any police questioning. I was never put in touch with police. And actually, I just like to say in context, I've now been given the opportunity to say that it was myself that brought about a concern regarding voter fraud and intimidation. And I've got those email trails to date to validate that. Um, and they were brought up with the then chief executive of the council, Gillian Beasley, who put that forward to the police. And I say to this date, when they talk about the stories that were stipulated within various media outlets, I'd be so glad if they were to retrieve those postal votes that they speak about and actually see who the person voted for, because it certainly wasn't for the Labour Party. And that's something that I've put out there and requested for time and again, retrieve those postal ballots, have a look at them, who did the person vote for? And it wasn't for the Labour Party. So there are two sides to every story. It's rather unfortunate that I wasn't given the opportunity to say my story and that story was given to them by an individual uh, that I was told about. However, it was important for me to exonerate myself and that's why I went down that pathway. It was important because the story was within the public interest and I was innocent and it was important to go all the way. The other thing is I'm also a professional. We also hold ourselves to account and undergo a process of scrutiny every single year through appraisal processes. Now, doctors are one of the most, I think, scrutinized individuals when it comes to our appraisal. We have reams and reams of paperwork to go through to validate that we are, we have our skills up to date, that we are safe to practice, that we are eligible to hold a license to practice. So it was pretty second nature to me to be able to evidence that the claims that were made were false. And again, we go back to the fact that there was a, a very toxic culture of politics that was prevailing. And it was necessary not only for myself, but to serve as a lesson to everybody that politics can be a culture and it can be an area where people can feel safe to come into. And I, I, I did this more not only for myself, but for other people that wanted to see this as a lesson and say, well, actually, it's not as bad as we think it is. If she can do it and exonerate herself, then it can be a pretty safe place where, where justice is sought and it's also delivered. So. That was, there were multiple reasons why I, I carried on. And the first and primary reason was that because I was innocent, I was innocent all along. And it was important to prove that so that people knew that the trust that they had in me as an elected representative was the right decision for them to make. Now, as you mentioned earlier, uh, there is a lack of uh, women representatives on the council. Women make up less than a quarter of all councillors on the council. Uh, and at the latest elections, male candidates outnumbered females by two to one. Is that because parties aren't selecting women candidates or because not enough women are putting themselves forward? I think that it's um, a combination of women not putting themselves forward and the state of affairs and, and the faith that the public have in politics in general. Like we've spoken a bit about how people 
are up in arms about the state of politics the the country over you know we we have a a lack of i think trust in politicians generally it's quite a negative feeling that the public has towards politics and politicians in general that's an off-putting factor for anyone let alone women to come into the arena that's the first thing i'd like to say the second thing from the labor party perspective we have a locally all women shortlist that support women coming into the political arena so a number of our wards were all women shortlist we're unique in that way that we make sure that equal opportunity is offered to women and we've done that before in our national parliamentary selections too where we've had all women shortlists so we foster that opportunity and I'm quite happy to say that I was part of that cohort in 2019 where seven of us got elected in the Labour Party, which was wonderful. And more recently, we've had Councillor Katie Cole, who was also first time elected in Dogsthorpe and her seat was an all women shortlist. So can I say that other parties can take note of it and obviously think about how their selection processes are probably yes so i think we set an example as a labor party by having all women shortlist locally so i don't think we're doing bad there now for the last year you've had the additional position as mayoress alongside councillor alan dowson as mayor how have you found that experience <laughs> i laugh because do you know it's been one of the most unique years i don't think there has been a mayor or a mayoress before us and who will come after us who have seen the Queen's Platinum, late Queen's Platinum Jubilee, um, her very sad passing and then the coronation of a king all in one year. So we've had that and it has been the most wonderful experience. It's been away from usual political shenanigans, I like to call them sometimes. It goes away from the, the discussions that you have in the chamber. And it is very much public focused and charity focused as well. That's the role I absolutely loved whilst helping Alan in his role as mayor. So we've donated over 25,000 pounds to charities, which include the Peterborough Food Bank, nearly every single breakfast, school um, breakfast club um, in primary schools in the city. We've also donated, and they, they, all the charities that we've donated to, I'd like to say to, to your listeners, they've all been local charities, local Peterborough charities, and we've taken great pride in doing that. So it has been an absolutely wonderful experience. I mean, Alan in himself is a history book of politics, what his journey has been. He was um, awarded recently a, a medal by the Queen as well, a British Empire medal. He was awarded for his services in the Second World War. He has come out of observing a, a nuclear bomb explosion and he has a great legacy in this city, especially his contribution to education, him and his wife Annie. They both taught at the regional college and then they moved to Brook Street and there aren't many people in this city who don't know Alan and Alan is somebody who's quite an eccentric as well he's got a great sense of humor so it was just it was wonderful and I, I'd always call ourselves a very unlikely mayor and mayoress you had me I, I'm very much a royalist I, I do like the royal family and I love everything that they do and Alan who isn't a royalist he's, he's more of a republican 
And it, it was quite, I think, interesting at certain moments throughout the year, some of which came in the paper, actually, about his, his decisions to wear a cocked hat, not to wear a cocked hat. So, But it, we've taken the positives out of it. And it's been very, very rewarding, I must say. So I absolutely love the year as mayoress. And I do it all over again. Does the role with its robes and chains and the, the car with the personalised number plate still have a place in modern society or, or does the role need modernising to bring it into the 21st century? Well, when we see that we have a monarch in King Charles who's very contemporary and somebody who's very progressive in his thought process, somebody who's passionate about the environment and, and human rights, I think that it would be important to say that all civic roles like this should be evolving in the same manner. I'd like to say that I can count on my hands probably the number of times that I've sat in the mayoral car. I haven't sat in it. I'd use my own car. It would be more convenient to use my own car to get away and to, to come back from events in my own time. And I think that we can see these roles evolving. I know of previous mayors, for example, we know Charlie Swift used to ride everywhere on his bike and not depend upon the use of the mayoral car. So I think there is a place for this this role becoming more modern and more progressive. And actually, does it really make a difference to have a mayor's car? I don't think it does. Um, and looking at the amount of money that's spent at the cost of the public purse, I do think that it can be a subject that is put up for debate. And these uh, matters are largely ceremonial, aren't they? And do they add anything to the quality of society? I don't think they really do. And I don't think that it really makes a difference. So yeah, I think that these should be subjects that are put up for debate and a, a matter of public consultation as well, because at the end of the day, it is their tax money that goes towards uh, paying for these things. So yeah, I, I would say definitely we should be thinking more progressively and it should be a role but modernise with the time. Let's take a look at the recent elections. How do you view Labour's local performance? So with the exception of our loss in Park Ward and this I think the Labour group leader Dennis Jones would be completely in agreement with me and we both say that we lost Park Ward. The Conservatives didn't win it. We lost it, okay? Which gives us the opportunity to sit down and actually do a post-mortem of what happened. I think that Park Ward was lost on the back of many factors. As you know, we had our previous leader, Councillor Shaz Nawaz, who'd handed in his resignation quite near to the elections. That played a factor as well. A lot of people that we spoke to weren't aware that he had given his resignation. So trying to mire factors like that and introducing new candidates very late in the selection process was something that I think that we're all going to have to live with the results of. And having a look at the other, we, we were defending more seats. That was another factor as well. And resource is also very important. So I think although we may not have followed the national trend as well as we would have expected to, we still got some good results on the night. And I think the other thing I'd like to point out is that the overall vote share increased this year for the Labour Party, as opposed to the Conservatives whose vote share actually decreased if you look at the overall number of votes. So we're taking the positives, but the negatives do have to be looked at and we do have to develop a strategy. 
Um, next year, we know that the opposition councillors are defending far more seats. Uh, we are going to be working on those seats to try and win as many as we possibly can. And we have a really good team. We have a fabulous group of councillors already who are talented. A lot of them are professionals. They come from different backgrounds. We've got a great leader in Dennis Jones who's got a, a vision and we've got a fabulous parliamentary candidate in Andrew Pate. So marrying all of that together, we are very positive for next year's results. Nationally, Labour had a, a good result, gaining 500 seats, while the Conservatives had a disastrous night of losing over a 1,000. Uh, why couldn't the local Labour Party capitalise on that swell of support across the rest of the country? It's, again, some of the factors were put forward on the fact that, you know, we lost two prime seats in Park Ward, which has historically always been a Labour ward since the time that, predominantly been a Labour ward since the time that John Shearman um, had come into it. It was unfortunate for us and it was unlucky. Let's just say it was very unlucky due to the factors that I've already stipulated in the fact that we'd lost um, councillors just before the elections. It was very difficult to pick up on that. And I figure that had we won those two seats, we would have also replicated what the national picture was alongside Labour. For us, it was just unfortunate. And I will put it down to the fact that it was unfortunate. But the reality is that yes, we lost Park Ward. Um, in other places, we fared pretty well. You've seen my result. Uh, we worked really hard on that. We were unfortunate in Ravensthorpe as well. But if we have a look at the vote margin, it wasn't that far off from taking those seats. So there were lots of different factors that we've had to look at. And there were many other wards in which we came second where we would never have dreamed to have come second. So. If you have a look at the difference in vote margin, it isn't as great as you think it would be or what it was prior to 2000, prior to 2020 and COVID when COVID came about. So all in all, I think that although we lost those two seats in part, we haven't done as bad as you probably think that we have. Although it didn't align with the national picture, it was just that we were unfortunate in park. Why was there not a local Labour Party manifesto this year? So we'd been, as you know, we'd been hit with quite quite a few things. We had the selections and we then obviously had um, quite a few of our councillors that had unfortunately decided not to appeal and wanted to stand independently. We had a lot of things to negotiate whilst we were running up to elections. And there was a lot to deal with, Dave, in reality. We had to get ourselves together. We had to form a new executive after Councillor Shaznoaz um, had retired or resigned or, or whatever it was. And in the midst of all of that, we were actually running out of time. So we had to get our priorities. Our priorities were to defend our key target seats, to make sure that we retained those key target seats, because not to forget, we were defending more than we were hoping to gain. And then towards the end, we already had two elections to contest in Park Ward. So you can say that we, we did have our work cut out really. So we had to prioritize whether putting up a manifesto was in the best interest or were we just going to concentrate on retaining our seats. And I think the latter gained uh, more of a priority Number one, there really wasn't time to chalk up a manifesto because we knew, looking at the forecast, that we weren't going to take over this year. But 
the next year is going to be different. We will have a manifesto. It's going to include, and I've taken feedback from the public, it's going to include policies that are inclusive of less able-bodied people and also comprise a wide range of all of our communities um, and to have policies that are robust, are, are also fair and tackle the socioeconomic disparities that we're currently facing as a result of the cost of living crisis. So watch this space. That's what I will say. Over 90% of respondents to a poll that I put out on Twitter said that they'd only had one party or less knocking on their door in the run up to the election, with the majority of those saying that they'd had nobody visit at all. Are the parties in Peterborough doing enough to earn the votes of city residents? Do you know, we're just about to have a training day by a very renowned individual who, and I've learned this and we've all learned this, a counsellor, a good counsellor, is one that is out on the doorstep speaking to their residents, not just at election time, but all year round. Okay. And we know that the responsibilities of a councillor are multifold. So you've got your element and your responsibilities at scrutiny committee meetings and statutory regulatory bodies and those meetings. And then you've also got your role to play within the chamber. But a councillor also has their role to play with the electorate who put them there in the first place. And whilst you see this surge of visibility and social media activity and media activity nearer election time, it is very important that people make themselves visible throughout the year. And what the poll has said in, in your case is that there may be a lack of activity throughout the year. Now, I know of a lot of councillors, the good councillors and the successful councillors that are elected time and again are those that are visible throughout the year. And maybe it's about time that that is looked at, you know, the quality of your candidates. Is this person able to deliver on those responsibilities that I entailed of them as a councillor? So I think that it's for every party to have a look at the quality of their candidates and see the, what their capabilities are. But certainly your poll really does suggest that work doesn't just take place at election time, but actually it entails somebody to work throughout the year, especially when they do become a councillor. So these are questions that certainly I think need to be asked of every party. Now, I haven't had a councillor or a candidate knock on my door in the nearly 10 years that I've lived in my current residence. Uh, I spoke to somebody who lives in West Ward and he said that he voted for Councillor Fitzgerald because he was the only candidate that put in an appearance on his doorstep. How many wards is Labour capable of fighting to win any one election? So this is quite strategic. We do have our own um, processes where we have target wards that we will look at um, and try to make sure. And the Conservatives do the same as well. They, they have their target seats that you put your resource into. And it's a a twofold process. We have obviously the Labour group in Peterborough and we also have something known as the Constituency Labour Party which is known as our local CLP and we haven't had one since 2020 because of the suspensions nationwide there were lots of CLPs that were unfortunately dissolved and our CLP has only just now been reinstated. In the past you would see these big wins with Labour simply because of the fact that it was a collaboration of working between the CLP and Labour group councillors and candidates. 
we didn't have it this year because we had no CLP, so there was a lack of boots on the ground. But we certainly now with the reforming of a CLP, we will see more boots on the ground, more resource and certainly more people knocking on doors going forward. So looking forward to next year's elections, obviously, as you said, the uh, the, the field is a lot better one for you in terms of I think you only have two seats that you have to defend, whereas the Conservatives, as it stands, currently have 15. What are you looking to do differently next time round from this year in order to make sure that you have a more positive result? I think it's important to engage in teamwork across the board. Like I said, selections were quite late and um, because of them being late, we had quite a few of those councillors that were defending their seats, focusing solely on defending their seats. You will not be a stranger to the amount of resource that was put into East Ward, for example, where we had the privilege of the Prime Minister coming to visit East Ward. And um, it was a very big and a very publicly um, projected campaign. And in a way, it was, it was I, I look at the positive side of it and think, well, you know, it's great, great to have that sort of, you know, projection. <laughs> Eastward has now been put on the map. So I think because of the late selections, that's one factor as well. And just being able to distribute ourselves out, I hope that we can have our candidates in place a lot more earlier. We can form our teams. We can go around to those wards that we're going to hopefully be targeting and win a lot more seats. So that's the change in strategy so far. And I hope that it brings about a very positive result for us. Like I said, we've, we're a great executive team now, a great leader in Dennis who's got a vision with Andrew Pates. And we're here to support both of them, as well as come together as a very strong team. And we're very optimistic about the future. Politics in general is in a pretty bad place currently with politicians making promises to the electorate and either not being able to or choosing not to keep them. Less than a third of people in the city bothered to turn out to vote at the local elections. What are Labour going to be doing to try and get those people who aren't voting out to vote for Labour? I think it's really important that we speak our truth, isn't it? It's very important that we raise the fundamental issues that people are suffering. There are more than 65% of families who are suffering as a result of the cost of living crisis, Dave. Those are, um, there are people that are still choosing between having to heat and eat. We have a significant population of people that are unable to pay their bills. And those are the people that we need to be targeting. Of course, we've also got the working class people, people from the trade union movement that in the 1990s characteristically always voted Labour. And as a result of voter apathy, you've had the pandemic to negotiate as well. People are burnt out, tired. They're wanting to work to make ends meet. And for a lot of them, politics isn't on their mind. So it's being able to gauge those people back, foster a sense of hope and optimism and to use those good Labour policies that we have both nationally and locally when we devise that in our manifesto to reignite that hope once more. And we're going to work really hard on that. The Conservatives have seen four councillors leave the group to join Peterborough first. Labour had its own issues in the last year, first with Councillor Heather Skibstead joining the Greens, then, as you mentioned, Councillors Imtiaz Ali and Ansar Ali leaving after they were apparently deselected from standing in May's elections. Should any councillor leaving the party on whose platform they were elected face an automatic by-election to determine if it's the person or the party the electorate wants? 
I think that that's a decision that has to be brought within the remit of uh, the local government association. I think that obviously if we implement something like that locally, it would be seen to be implemented nationwide. And that's not something that we have a decision to make about because not to forget that whilst the Labour Party has had its defections, you've also seen them in the Conservative Party. I think it would be unwise and unfair of me to say that, yes, they automatically should face a by-election, but it's a decision that I feel needs to be taken a lot more higher up and then it needs to be rep replicated nationally as well for consistency and fairness, nothing more than that. We always have to look at openness, transparency, consistency. So if any one party were to call for it, then I think that it should be reciprocated across the board and that those parties should implement it within their own ranks as well. But do you have a, a personal opinion on, on which way you think it should go? I think it's very circumstantial, isn't it, Dave? I mean, the defections that we've seen within the Labour Party have largely been attributed as a result of um, sort of Labour holding its candidates to very, very high standards. We have seen that. We have an incredible process whereby you aren't just interviewed for your eligibility. And these are sitting councillors as well, by the way. You aren't just interviewed, but you also have to go through a democratic process whereby branches also nominate you and you are also interviewed there. And that's what happens within the Labour Party. So whether the defections that took place from the Labour Party. Um, and I, I'm just going to give you a bit of information. In 2019, and this is for everybody to know, this is a bit of information that nobody knows. When I first stood or applied to stand as a councillor and I was interviewed by a panel, my interview was rejected. I failed interview. And the reason why I was failed at interview was, the question that was asked of me was, what's the rush? <laughs> to becoming a councillor and I said well I might you might have just seen me in Peterborough now but I've always been an activist and I appealed because I thought no this just can't be right I didn't take it personally and I was reselected so it's it's it depends I think on the individual circumstance those that have defected from Labour we thank them for their service they were brilliant councillors in the Labour Party it's unfortunate that they decided not to stay with us and as far as the Conservative defections are concerned that was a wider issue that was an issue that came within the public domain it was of public interest and it raised a lot of eyebrows so we're talking about matters again of councillors integrity of openness, of transparency, and councillors within the Conservative Party not aligning with that, that lack of transparency that was so apparent. So they decided to leave because their, their values didn't seem to align with what was happening in the moment. And I um, agree with them. I agree with their decision to do so. So it's very circumstantial and individual, depending upon the reasons for a councillor wanting to defect in the first place and I've tried to give you an outline of, of what happened in the Labour Party and what happened in the Conservative Party that was knowledge within the public domain. So when we're going back to asking about what my personal opinion would be, I think that it depends upon the circumstance and the, the, the individual uh, reason behind the defection. 
Just finally on the elections, it's been reported that the National Labour Party has banned local council parties from going into coalition with others before the general election. Is that accurate? I don't think it is. I think that uh, the NEC, which is the National Executive Committee, has a look at all cases individually. I know there have been reported cases of a an advice against coalition, especially in Oxford, we've seen. Um, and it all really does depend. And the NEC looks at uh, some of these situations on an individual basis. We do have, like I said, a process whereby we have to go through the party. The National Executive Committee then um, informs us as to what the decision is and that we have to abide by it. But it is an individual. It's, there's no blanket ban, as far as I'm aware. Um, and that each decision individually has to take place. There have been coalitions in the past, and I think that it is circumstantial and it depends upon the individual makeup of that council. But we, we have to go and follow a process, and that process is one that is being followed. So I don't think that it's a blanket ban. I don't think that there's any policy that specifically states that Labour can't go into coalition but um, we have to follow our own processes um, and that's what we do. Now the process has begun on creating a new local plan for the city. Should the focus be on maintaining cathedral views or green fields? So that ties in with, I think, the whole issue around the embankment, doesn't it? When we look at sort of, you know, the cathedral views, we should never forget that the embankment is a beautiful, beautiful space. It's the only green lung in the city. We have had quite a few consultations regarding that. Looking at the local plan, though, um, and in answer to your question, again, these plans have to be reviewed and renewed every five years. It was up. Um, for that renewal and um, it was presented to full council in January this year and a plan for bringing more employment into the city, obviously looking at housing as well. Um, and I think that we have to take into consideration the number of green spaces that we have in the city and the viability of any construction to take place that brings in employment. But then again, I also think that we have to look at what kind of employment and investment are we attracting? And a good example to have a look at is at our neighbours in Cambridge. So when we look at the amount of space that we have within this city that can attract investors in the way of attracting and, and producing more employment, are we just limited to those warehouses and our, for example, Amazon storage spaces and other companies that are going to be bringing low skilled employment to the city. Does that work in our best interest? I don't think it does. I think that we need to be a city that attracts more high skilled employment, such as pharmaceutical industry, such as other scientific industry. That's what we need to be bringing into our city and our spaces with reference to employment. Uh, planning is very tight because a lot of the these are the challenges that we're going to face in trying to execute this local plan that we don't have much land for employment investors that is already um, not proposed to have planning put on it that hasn't been constructed upon so 
these are some of the challenges that we are facing. And for the remainder of that land, what type of employment are we attracting and what type of investment are we attracting? If it's high skill investment, wonderful, all for it. That's exactly what we need. And that's what the university is doing at this moment in time as well. You can see that it started. There's been some great engagement with local stakeholders. The students are coming in and it's it's a it's wonderful to see as soon as you turn onto bishops road it's a beautiful building and something that's very very promising for the future our city and not to forget dave the purpose of bringing high skilled employment into this city is something that will attract more investment and previously i think that um you know we've we've had sort of universities that have wanted to invest here into the city and they've gone away simply because of the fact that they haven't seen that promise so i think that our narrative needs to change i think that we need to be attracting high skilled employment into the city through planning applications that are given that reflect that high skill employment the council has been asking people to vote on social media on whether they should go ahead with spending 35000 pounds to get the fountains up and running in cathedral square this year What's your view on what should be done with the fountains and the square as a whole? I think that we have a beautiful looking cathedral square. I mean, look at the amount of events that we have been able to host on it throughout the years. You've got Guild Hall and then you've got the iconic town hall building in front of it as well. And then just in the backdrop, you've got those beautiful arched doors towards the cathedral. I mean, we're very, very fortunate to have that. I think that it should be a matter of public consultation simply because of the fact that the public purse would go to fund that £35,000. And do I see it as a necessity when I'm looking at the cost of living crisis at this moment in time and seeing what that money could achieve in other areas, then possibly I'm not much of a big fan, but that could be because my kids are now teenagers and they don't frequent the city centre to use those fountains as much. If they were toddlers, I probably would be more in favour of it. <laughs> so that's just a personal perspective. However, I do think that it depends upon what the results of the public consultation. I think in such matters, I always like the public to make the decision. Is it something that affects me either way as a public representative? Yes, I do. I do want to be reflective of what the public want i think that that's important and is it a decision that's going to be whipped no certainly not but i do think that um the public taxpayer should funds should be used and put to good use as well and it should be justified so that's where i stand on it do you think that using social media in this way is a is a positive thing is it more democratic to to get uh, the public's view in this way or is it just a way of passing the buck on difficult decisions? To be honest with you Dave I have brought up our consultation methodologies previously at um, joint scrutinies and um, I think that one of the matters that I brought up our way of public consultation was through the city care centre moving that was one of the things the urgent care centre urgent treatment centre moving and the other thing was um consult that was from the ccg by the way but the other thing was obviously on on the embankment and i think that um using social media there are lots of people on social media it's an effective tool if used in the right way as well but we could be doing more to engage our local media portals i think that that's really important so using tabloids such as 
the Cambridge News or the Peterborough Telegraph, I think that's very important because a lot of our elderly and frail population aren't able to use social media and aren't technology savvy. We have those people with special needs who aren't literate to use or engage in a consultation online. So I think that those populations and their say is really important too. So having a look at a multitude of platforms to make sure that you have an equitable outcome in the consultation is very important. If it's only limited to social media, I don't think that it's equitable and it's not reflective of the population adequately or fairly. Now, as well as being a counsellor, you, as you said earlier, are also a GP. What would you say about the state of the NHS in Peterborough currently? The state of the NHS in Peterborough currently is not fit for purpose. As somebody who works for the profession, I put my hands up and say that our residents don't have adequate accessibility to a GP's appointment when they should have one. That's the first thing. As a GP, I put my hands up and say that I completely take the public side on this. Things need to change. And actually, the Shadow Secretary of State for Health, West Treating, recently came to Peterborough. And this was one of the things that he spoke about, standardising and completely changing the GP partnership model into all doctors being on a, a standardised salary and delivering care where it is most needed. Accessibility is a huge issue and it's something that I will be raising as now new chair of the Adults and Health Scrutiny Committee. So watch this space with that one because this is something that I'm ardently going to be campaigning for. The second thing is we have more than 75,000 people waiting for an operation at Peterborough City Hospital under Northwest Anglia Foundation Trust. It is absolutely awful. The situation is dire. We have patients suffering. And what that's resulting in, Dave, is you are seeing this have um, a, a reciprocal negative impact and pressure on GP services. So my typical day is speaking to 30, 40 patients and a lot, a large proportion of those patients, apart from their other conditions, will be, I'm still waiting for an appointment to speak to my specialist. It's been five months and I haven't heard anything from the urologist, or I'm still waiting for my hip operation. I know of a patient who's been waiting for three years to have their hip operation, can hardly walk. They're the sole carer for their um, wife, and they can't afford to stop working because they have to pay the bills and they have to look after their spouse and they're still waiting for an operation on the NHS. Um, I mean, come on, we're living in the 21st century and it's not just Peterborough, it's throughout the country. So how are we going to solve it? First of all, I think it's incredibly important that we have a look at the factors and the reasons behind why this has happened. Yes, a part of it is because of the post COVID pandemic and catch up, we can see that. But also, if you have a look at the professionals themselves, we have had for the very first time in Peterborough, and this was stipulated in 2020, we have a shortage of healthcare assistance at the local trust. So there is a deficit of healthcare assistance. This was after Brexit. We also have nurses who are going off sick, who are burnt out, who can no longer hack the responsibility of the job anymore. We have a shortage of junior doctors and 
obviously coupled with the strikes that are taking place more recently as well. And they've got it hard to be to be honest with you. I mean, the average junior doctor earns anywhere within a range of fourteen hundred pounds per month and nineteen hundred pounds per month. That's after tax is deducted. They've got to pay indemnity fees. They've got to pay for training. They've got to pay for exams. They've got to pay rent bills. And in some cases, those that have young families have to pay for childcare. And within my time as a doctor, I've known of three junior doctors who've committed suicide because they couldn't take it anymore. So the decision comes a lot more higher as to how to improve the lives of these people who are keeping our NHS running because you cannot run on goodwill for much longer. And that's why we're seeing the situation that we're seeing now. Would you say that Peterborough is a disability friendly city? I think that huge improvements need to be made for disability access. One of the things that, and I say this, I just, I, I'm sort of, I take a big sigh when I say this, I'm looking at the predicament of the hydrotherapy pool in terms of being accessible to people who are less able-bodied. I use the word less able-bodied because I want to be able to encompass the physical disabilities that people face and how the hydrotherapy pool benefited them. When I was a GP at Dogsport Medical Centre, a large proportion of my patients were referred to the hydrotherapy pool. I've seen some of the great work that they've done. I was given a tour of it. Um, and the the quality of life that it brings and the, the ensuing, I think, the burden that it takes off other um, resources such as sort of you know the GPs, the NHS, physiotherapy services is is wonderful. I mean the benefits of hydrotherapy have been stipulated in literature, and we had this asset that was there. Yes, it was closed because of COVID. Yes, I know that the decision to close it was because it, we, they would have had to put in a substantial amount of infrastructure to make it fit for purpose again. However, we had the regional pool facility and I can recall that there was going to be a hydrotherapy service that was implemented into that leisure facility as part of the town's fund bid. It got deleted off the system. It was something that I'd asked about years ago and it was found that it was too expensive to initiate. However, the like for like service that the administration have stipulated at the Phoenix School is out of reach of most people. Those that don't drive would have to change public transport or two buses to get to that facility. Number four, it is far too expensive. And number five, the risk assessments around having a proper qualified physiotherapist to interact with disabled people when they use that facility is deficient and these are some of the questions that I will be asking at our next full council that what have we done to try and improve that facility to make it like for like it's not reachable I'd be interested to know what the uptake was so in answer to your question Dave going back and after giving this whole explanation no I don't think that we are up to the mark when it comes to being a disabled friendly city I mean how many disabled toilets do we have within the city centre or disabled facilities? Not very many is the answer. So we've just got to have it, get the basics right, haven't we really? Now, if Labour were to take control of the council next year after the elections, 
what specifically would you look to do to improve that situation for those that say they can't afford the offering uh, that's on offer in the city at the moment in terms of hydrotherapy? I think that it's really important. We're going to have our work cut out if we take. Let's let's be open, honest and and put things into perspective. If we were to take over the council next year, we have a huge challenge okay in overcoming a lot of what's already been done and implemented some of that will be interchangeable some of that will be irreversible we're going to have to make sure that people that pay their tax to city council if we were administration will get bang for their buck first of all and changes won't be brought about overnight they will take years to implement and then years to be seen However, with the right things in place and with the right manifesto policies encompassing, I think, advantages for people that are disabled, we'll be on the right track to be able to do so. And actually, we've got many people now who are within our ranks who are, are qualified. I'm obviously the NHS. You've got so Councillor Samantha Hemraj, who is a fellow councillor of mine, who is a HCA and also Unison Staffside Chair, which is a trade union movement who are doing some fundamental work for not only disabled people, but also for women as well and ethnic minorities. And I think that they should definitely be given a mention. A lot of those policies will also be looked out in trying to chalk out a manifesto for people in our city and for the working class. And I think that we will get there eventually. So whilst I can't give you specifics, I can give you the promise that it will be something that uh, we will definitely be seeking to look at and make people feel more included and more validated, if anything. Flightbing continues to be a major issue in the city, as you recorded alongside Councillor Hemraj from your ward in the run up to the election. What could the council do to reduce the instances of it happening that it's not already doing? Do you know, I completely, I'm so happy that you saw that video as well, by the way. I usually don't have. I have a policy of not posting anything fly tipping related before the elections because I don't want people to think that I'm advertising that I'm doing something when actually we should be doing it all year round. Fly tipping comprises the majority of our casework. Let's put it out there, it really is. And what is it that the council currently aren't doing? I think our process of enforcement is really arduous. I think the fact that if you see somebody who has perpetrated fly tipping and you have to put out a witness statement then have to stand up in front of that person in court and give evidence is really arduous. I think legislation needs to change around that. Yes, having more cameras in the city might be helpful, but actually it's taking that footage and that evidence and implementing it into fines which has to change. You know, we've tried everything, haven't we? I think reinstating free bulky waste collection as well would be something that is, is um, I think, attractive. It used to be there before. We've got to implement what was there in the past and also modify legislation that we have right now. And part of that legislation is taking good practice from places like Cambridge, for example. So their enforcement rates are far more higher than Peterborough and are very effective. And I think that that's what we need to improve going forward. Our enforcement needs to be a lot more easier and streamlined so that perpetrators are caught out and they don't do it again. A Labour MP recently was suspended by the party following allegations that they had subjected uh, younger female colleagues to unwanted attention. 
Charlotte Nichols, another a Labour MP, stated that when she entered Parliament in 2019, she was given a list of MPs to, quote, do everything I could to make sure that I wasn't alone with, to never accept a drink from, to not get in a lift with, end quote. Did you receive any similar warnings when you joined the council in the same year? I didn't, no. Why should I? I mean, I've always been, I think, in the chamber, the atmosphere is rather... Um, friendly. We have opposition councillors and councillors of our own party coming up to us of, of any gender. And I've always been treated respectfully. Political differences put aside, I've personally never felt unsafe with any councillor. Yes, I've, I've had a difficult journey, you know, but um, I've never been subjected to any, any kind of behaviour in which I felt unsafe or um, I've had to report anything and I, I'm somebody that would report it straight well call it out there and then straight away as I'm quite vocal as most people know but no I haven't and I feel really sad for any woman I think in public position who have had to be um, meted out with such warnings it's unacceptable in the the public arena it shouldn't happen again as political representatives, we need to be held to the highest standards. So irrespective of which political party you belong to, such behaviour is unacceptable. And I think the, the Labour Party were right in their decision um, as to as to what they way they did. Again, locally, um, I think that very much similar would happen if it were to be evident, but I haven't heard of it and I, I've never been subjected to such behaviour. So safe space. It's a safe space for us all at this moment. Do you agree with local Lib Dem leader, Councillor Hogg, when he stated that council leader Fitzgerald was playing, quote, silly political games with which put better bus, rail, walking and cycling facilities for Peterborough at risk, end quote? I think that the wording, obviously, there's a time and a place for scrutinising the leader of the council. If I talk about agreeing, I do think that we have seen Metro Mayor Nick Johnson who has recently put out a newspaper article about how the leader of the council has voted against those transport proposals. I think it's very unfortunate that that was the case. It does put the public here in Peterborough to a disadvantage. And I think that it is um, it shouldn't have happened because there are people who are crying out for an adequate bus service. I know that transport was something that Mayor Alan Dowson was very passionate about when we look at our rural areas as well. You have a look at places like Wittering, in which there are children that are walking from school using that A1, would you believe, walking down the A1 that I have seen. So when we talk about the leader of the council making such decisions, I think that I would like to advise him that you just need to walk out to these rural areas and see those school children at school time walking down the A1, um, being put at a substantial amount of risk and ask him to reflect on his decision. And that's what I would say to him, but certainly hold him to account in the chamber as well, which is the right thing to do. Now, all the way back at the, the beginning, you mentioned about the embankment when we were talking about the, the local plan. Uh, it's been 15 months since the embankment master plan was released last year. And other than funding being confirmed for the bridge crossing to Fletton Keys, there's been very little movement on anything else within the plan. What were your thoughts when the, the plan or on the plan when it was initially released? Um, is this for the embankment for the arena? 
well, the embankment as the whole, whether it includes an arena or not, is it had those two options uh, as part of the, the plan. Yes, that's correct. Now, looking at the embankment as a whole, like I stipulated in the beginning of the interview, the embankment is the only green lung of our city at this moment in time. It has beautiful, incredible, beautiful views of the cathedral as well. And the reason why it's of relevance to councillors like myself is that we have um, a part of our ward that borders onto the embankment. And the, I know about the topography of the embankment because on Christmas Day in 2021, believe it or not, we had some substantial rains that resulted in some flooding. And residents who lived on the Potter's Way estate were ordered to turn their electricity and gas off because they were going to be subjected to flooding. That is the embankment area. Now, it does come under a floodplain area. When you look at the plans of the embankment with relevance to the arena, the arena was absolutely huge in those plans. And part of the questions that I brought to various joint scrutiny committee meetings was, have structural surveys taken place to substantiate whether we would suffer from potential flooding of the arena if it were to be built? That's the first thing. And what are the risks to the surrounding residents that uh, live in those estates that encroach the embankment? Would the risk to their lives increase? And this was obviously taking that experience on Christmas Day Dave and I can remember because I stayed up all night because I had a young lady who had given birth to a one-month-old and a disabled husband and I said to her she says I can see the water encroaching onto my back garden and I said to her, if I have to come and get you myself I will and we were locating sandbags I'd employed the council emergency services spoken to other councillors about it so it really was quite a dire situation now if you can imagine that if that situation were to come about and you had a great big arena there, would the situation or the risk increase? Those are some of the questions that we need to ask ourselves. Obviously, how adequate was the public consultation when this took place? Where are the finances coming from? These are all questions that I've asked throughout the years when this consultation was live and in relation to these plans as well. Not to forget the fourth parameter, which is the university. So, have the university been consulted about it? And in the past, when we've had plans for this arena, we have always put off universities investing into the area and into the embankment simply because of the fact that we've they've been put off by the prospect that this, this massive arena is going to be put there. So we've got to take into consideration the key stakeholders and what they feel. Having said that, the embankment should have a certain level of development that reflect the needs of the population and attract investment but we need to do it in a sensible way so an area that's a thriving cultural cafe culture for example we've got prospects for we already have the beer festival there um, and, and other things it could be a cultural hub that, that attracts festivals and, and, and music events throughout the year. So there are innovative ways of developing the embankment and I'm not opposed to development of it, but I really do think that it has to be in line with the values that the public hold, that the university holds as well. And I also want to say that I'm a football fan, so I can't tell you how envious I was 
when I saw Luton FC gain their their very famous promotion, as it were. And I'd love to be able to have a look at ways in which we support our local um, football club and how we can do that. So yes, they do need they do need their own space. And I think that there are areas within the city that could be identified to put them um, so that the people that come from outside, the fans that come from outside have easy access as well as those from within the city as well. So definitely not putting them to the side because we, we have to support our football club on the same lines that Luton has had their support as well. So those are my views of the embankment for their own reasons. And also the fact that we do need to support Posh, but I do think that we need to look at alternative provision as well. Now we'd like to finish the podcast with some quick fire questions. Should the post office sports and social club have allowed Nigel Farage to go ahead with his show at their premises at the end of May? Nigel Farage is a very controversial figure. I think that that should have been reflected upon. And I think for future events, that should something that should be looked at and probably not repeated. What would you like to see more in 2024? A Labour run Peterborough Council or a Labour run national government? I'd like to see both. It's the obvious answer, I guess. Uh, do you agree with Labour plans to lower the voting age to 16? I do. Nowadays, you see that I'm going to give you a really interesting perspective here. We have something known in medicine known as Gillick competency, okay, in which a patient, um, however young they are, if they are able to process and understand and relay information back to you about a certain treatment they want, it is at the doctor's discretion to be able to prescribe that treatment for them. Obviously, the doctor has ultimate responsibility for it. In the way, in this way, our education system and our children have become far more mature and well versed with what is going on in the world around them. And 16 is the age within the medical arena that declares a person becoming an adult. So as soon as a patient turns 16 years old, they are now um, sent on to adult related services. So your general surgeon see people who are 16 years old, medics see people who are 16 years old in adult wards. So yes, I do agree with Labour's manifesto to lowering the voted age to 16 years old because all of our decisions, our children are the future. So all of our decisions should encompass their say as well. And you you have a lot of 16 year, years old out there who are very interested in politics. So why shouldn't they be part of the decision making too? Should local and national elections move to a form of proportional representation and away from first past the post? I think so. I think that um, it's something that the Labour Party has looked into. I'd have to know a little bit more about it in terms of what policies are stated in the Labour Party. To be quite honest with you, I've been so engrossed in, in what's been going on locally and within my own councillor remit that I don't know enough about proportional representation and first past the post. But yeah, definitely something that has been spoken about at events that I've gone to. But I'd like to know a little bit more about it. If you were put in charge of the council tomorrow, what are the first three changes that you'd make? If I was put in charge of the council tomorrow, now that's a really good question and if not much for a, a fire um, question that I could answer quickly. But if I was put in charge of the council, I'd clean up the city. I'd look to attracting investment because that would in the long term uh, lead to a cycle of growth. 
And I think that the third thing I would look at is investing in the health and well-being of our population as well. So attract different kinds of businesses rather than just sort of, you know, fast food outlets and takeaway. So I think there would be a health aspect to it as well, because that's something I'm passionate about. Finally, what's one place or business within your ward that you think the people of Peterborough should look to visit? So I think that the one business within my ward is Perkins. Now, it's an obvious one, but the reason I say that is not just an engineering hub, but it is a history. It has a history within this city. You can't talk about Peter and not talk about Perkins. It's an engineering hub. And in fact, you'll be really interested. I'm going to share this with you. Eric, who happens to be a volunteer, works at the Peterborough Museum. He is in his 80s. He won't mind me taking his name at all. And if he's listening to this, I want to say hi to him. He had been working for Perkin Engines throughout his life. Peterborough, born and bred, has travelled the world as a result of the engineering feats that have been achieved by Perkins. So, yes, if there was only one business that I would like you to visit, it would certainly be Perkins. Councillor Cahill, thank you for joining me on the politics of Peterborough. Thank you, Dave. It's been a wonderful experience. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Councillor Kayum for joining us. You can follow her on Twitter at DocShab. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you get each episode as soon as it's released. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at PoliticsPBORO. Please let us know what you thought of the episode. If you have any suggestions as to who you'd like to hear on the show or any questions you'd like us to put to our guests, you can email us at politics.peterborough at hotmail.com. This episode of The Politics of Peterborough was created, hosted, recorded and edited by me. We'll see you next time. Hold up. 